From politics in the pub Newcastle, in collaboration with the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle, this is Politics in a Podcast. Over the past three months, several scandals have come to light in federal parliament concerning politicians and their staff involved in allegations of sexual assault, rape and other inappropriate behaviour. A focal point of these issues has been the investigation into the alleged rape of Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins and the allegation of rape levelled at Attorney General Christian Porter. These were responded to by the emergence of the March for Justice and women and allies taking to the streets around the country, including Canberra and here in Newcastle, to protest the seeming lack of initiative to prevent workplace sexual abuses and the myriad of other gendered and radicalised violence crisscrossing politics, economy and society. One of the major slogans of the protest and gatherings was enough. Joining me to discuss these events and the broader theme of women in politics in Australia is Sarah C. Motter, Professor of Politics at the University of Newcastle. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. I want to start by asking you, what was your initial reaction to the Brittany, Higgin, to Brittany Higgins coming forward about her alleged rape and then Porter coming forward as the minister involved in another rape allegation? Thank you. Um, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which we meet, the Waramai and the Wabakul, and I'm sitting here in the estuary point and I can see the, the kind of meeting of the fresh and salt waters and pay my respects to elders past, present and emergent and any other Indigenous people who might be listening today. I'd also, because of the topic of, of the podcast discussion, like to really honour the matriarchs and the grandmothers for their survivance and wisdoms and strength. Um, so in terms of your question, I guess that for me and kind of the communities that I work with, there was no surprise at the revelation of these kinds of allegations and at the kind of exposure of potentially very gendered kind of violent relationships within government. Why? Because if we look at the historical foundations of Australian state and um, polity, we will see that it was very much... um, connected with invasion, with massacre, with gendered and racialized violence. There are many discussions, and, and uh, both politically and theoretically, which demonstrate how you know the urban frontier of cities such as Mullumbimba, Newcastle, was kind of created in relationship to the periphery settlements where often indigenous women, mothers, and their kin were placed and that these spaces were seen as spaces where no um, law or right was uh, to be enacted. And so you'd often have kind of settler invader men going to these spaces and committing multiple kind of sexualized and other forms of gendered and racialized violence. So... For me, both the reaction but also the exposure of these allegations really is like exposing the tip of an iceberg of a much deeper foundational kind of political um, uh, construction of a state and nation which always was premised upon the violation and the negation of rights of raced and gendered uh, 
subjects and their, and their families and their kin. You know, last I was listening, somebody sent me this with Stan Grant yesterday, um, and he has this. He said last night on Q and A, when a nation is built on theft, invasion, massacre, and rape, you then wonder now why you have a culture and a society that reflects some of these attitudes. And I and I would expand that to a polity and a state form and a form of sovereign sovereignty and governance that is very much embedded in logics which are all about dispossession, mastery, extraction, and that these kinds of logics were always. Um, constructed in relationship to feminized and racialized communities and subjects that were othered. And in being othered, there's a denial of the right to have rights. And this denial of the right to have rights is, is, is against um, and, and was articulated in relationship to indigenous First Nations communities, um, but also increasingly against other communities of colour or in relationship to refugees, in relationship to poor white women and communities, and of course in relationship to country herself. And so there are these logics which um, I think have impacted very, very deeply on the so social psychology of kind of hegemonic white masculinity um, and have really shaped both a state logic and a culture in which the underside of its civility and the underside of democracy and the underside of modernity are really premised on this hidden kind of violences. So it, it, it actually wasn't, um, it wasn't something that, that shocked me at all. It was more also the thing of like, as many of, you know, Indigenous First Nation kin here in these lands have said, um, including Stan Grant last night in the, in the discussion, that what was also disappointing in some ways is that the publicity and the response comes when it is kind of women in, in elite spaces of parliament, uh, but when there is kind of ongoing and systemic kind of violent traumas um, enacted by the state and in everyday life against kind of indigenous communities and other racialized communities and women, that this this kind of goes under the radar. So, you know, in the last two weeks, four indigenous people have been murdered by the police and, and there's these ongoing logics of of hunting, you know, the hunting of, 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 of black men and, and women and the, the kind of denial of the right to have rights and dignity. So I think it's it's tragic for the survivors in this case, well, and one woman obviously has taken her life, um, but um, it also, and it also, what it does is it helps us to expand and to ask these deeper questions, um, which I think is really connected to the multiplicity of responses that we found in Newcastle, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit later. I guess that... Um um, that underside, I suppose, to, to modernity and, and foundation of the state um, is an interesting one because I think that you look broadly at Australia, it's supposedly you know, the country that gave voting rights to women second in the world, had women involved in, in, in parliament uh, on the liberal side uh, since the 1940s, and yet in spite of that kind of broad top narrative, there's still this this deep undercurrent that yeah. doesn't really get yeah. a, a look in in any way. 
And I, th I think we have to be really careful. So from the kind of decolonial indigenous feminisms that I work with um, and the communities that I work with, one of the foundational starting point for a feminist practice um, is to acknowledge that woman is not unified. And that often when we talk of woman as a unified sense, we end up prioritizing the voices of already quite privileged women and white women who are embedded sometimes in institutions of the state and, and of, of elite institutions across the economy and the polity, and that we can really complexify and expose some of these logics in these structures of power and government and rule um, when we kind of flip our lens and we speak from multiple perspectives. So we centre the voices of First Nations women and their kin. We centre the voices of other marginalised groups, incarcerated women, trans uh, women, um, trans men, um, uh, queer folk, uh, women with disabilities, um, and in so doing, it actually gives us a much deeper picture, right? It gives us a much deeper picture from, oh, this is a matter of particular behaviours, which aren't acceptable and shouldn't be justified, right? But that actually there's very structures of how power is constructed and who is given power and privilege and agency and who is not, who is acted upon, who is violated upon, who is violated with their rights, with their dignity, with their knowledges, with their life worlds. And so um, that then can help us raise deeper questions about, yes, you can have particular women enter into institutions, but if the institutions follow a particular logic, then either those women have to struggle a lot because they're always like butting their heads against these logics and rationalities and these cultures and these structural norms, or then they can become complicit. So it actually opens up quite complex and difficult conversations about what it might mean to develop an intersectional First Nation centre, survivor-centred, feminist, uh, political and social movement. I should this down into the 21st century. Um, broadly, how have women fared in Australian politics over the last 21 years? Now, this is a huge question, and I've thought about this a lot. And, and again, I am speaking from a, a place of of being a, an Indigenous Mestiza woman on these lands <clears throat> and of working with decolonial Indigenous intersectional feminisms. So um, I think I need to honour the fact that I arrived here eight years ago and that that matters. So I actually often base my own analysis and my practice in building relationships with communities. So I feel, and my own experiences of, of being a woman of colour in these lands and a, and a single mother in these lands, uh, in a family that has um, ancestral trauma, right, and, and inherited that, and, and what it's meant to navigate these logics, these these rationalities. So I'm kind of more comfortable talking maybe about the last decade, like eight years, and 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 the kinds of areas that I've worked in and, and work in. So I would really say probably quite terribly, <laughs> particularly if you're looking from the perspective of. Um, uh, First Nation women, of um, often rural women, of um, of migrant women and refugee women, of other communities of colour, um, and um, and of survivors of gendered and race violence, whether that's in intimate settings of, of everyday life or whether that's in terms of the 
the interfaces with the state. Mm -hmm. And so it, there's many areas we can look at this from. So in terms of um, incarceration, um, in New South Wales, um, there has been since 2013 to 2019, a 33% increase in the number of women who are incarcerated. And of those incarceration rates, a third are Aboriginal women. Um, even though the Aboriginal community makes up 3% of the overall population. What we see is that often those um, women who are experiencing the consequences of this kind of systemic and ongoing historical trauma, um, whether that be trauma in their own families and lives, whether that be discrimination by the police, whether that be kind of dispossession from lands, are often being criminalised. And so we have processes of the criminalisation of intergenerational trauma and uh, poverty. And within that, we see um, Aboriginal women often being refused bail at higher rates um, and then having very little access and support to housing when they're released and often being uh, further criminalised. And uh, we see, um, obviously, deaths in custody. We had here in Maitland, Rebecca Mayer. Um, and um, these kind of conditions that don't acknowledge the systemic ongoing gendered and race violences against First Nation and other communities, and instead seek to criminalise and penalise survivors for um, uh, behaviours which are really playing out their trauma um, or uh, responses which are a sign of distress um, and a, a, a sign of harm. Um, and so in this sense, there is a kind of ongoing and a deteriorating um, relationship, I would say, in terms of questions of incarceration and the kinds of policies that are um, being developed and the kinds of strategies, even though I know there's contestations of that, which I'll talk about obviously later. And then in terms of domestic violence itself and, and trauma and the nexus with housing, there's very, very limited housing pathways after um, escaping and fleeing from domestic violence. There's an utter acute shortage. It's complete crisis. There's actually a a tent city happening on Monday here in Newcastle in Civic um, Park to illustrate this, what they're calling a humanitarian crisis in housing, um, both transitional and long term um, for survivors. There's the closure of refugees, so the outsourcing um, of refugees, sorry, there's the outsourcing of refugees as well to particular organisations that may, may well re-traumatise survivors. Um, there's increasing um, homelessness. And of course, all these factors can often reproduce a cycle of being caught in cycles of trauma, of violence, um, of homelessness and of lack of safety. Um, and we see this um, in 20% of homeless folk are often identifying as Aboriginal um, and also from other communities of colour. Like I know in my own family, I have a family member who 
has fallen through the cracks many times because of this disastrous crisis of lack of housing and services which are completely stretched and sometimes models of service intervention that reproduce pathologizing of survivors of these complex traumas, both state and intimate. We also see these gendered and race violences um, reproducing themselves in terms of rates of child removal. So there's a nexus between all these things. So, you know, we, we often hear how the stolen generation has ended, but actually there is a continual um, increasing rates. We have the second highest rates of child removal in uh, the Hunter region, particularly targeted to First Nation refugee and poor white families. Um, Aboriginal women are eight, uh, Aboriginal children, sorry, are eight more times likely to enter care. Um, and they make up 40% of the 14,000 children in out-of-home care um, and often in these processes I've worked on this with an organisation called FISH and we've also um, supported the work of Grandmothers Against Removal is that we see um, again that, that trauma or poverty is, is becoming pathologised and that Indigenous forms of care and kinship are viewed as dysfunctional so, you know, aunties or grandmothers caring for children are seen as somehow careless and, and dysfunctional, and that this is then reproducing strategies which continue to reproduce the, tra the trauma and, and kind of create the conditions for ongoing violence and, and for ongoing um, kind of falling through the cracks you know, of services that either are underfunded and overstretched or services that pathologise. We also see, of course, compulsory cashless welfare programs, and they're often, you know, originally introduced in the intervention in Northern Territory and have been proven to um, cause um, uh, harm to women and children uh, in the name of kind of helping and this kind of continued infantilization, which goes back to the foundation of kind of modern Australia of these poor women and children, these Aboriginal women and children aren't to be trusted to be able to manage money, to be able to, you know, organise their own lives um, and instead need to be, like, conditionally given and, and surveilled. So um, uh, we also have, of course, um, the continuing uh, dehumanisation of refugee families and of women and their children. We have uh, processes of gentrification, so here in Newcastle, where there's a massive process of gentrification that's often kind of reproducing dispossession and the closure of public housing and public services in the centre and this inflation of prices, a complete blowout of the rental uh, sector, um, and you see this huge crisis on the central coast brewing as well and often deeply gendered. Um, we see, there's so many layers, right? We also see this in even the extractive economy. So in lots of, you know, projects for, for um, the gas-led gas recovery and in mining, you will see this ongoing logic of um, the denial of the right to have rights to custodians of those lands, to sacred sites, to country herself. So in many ways, we can see... Um, a real compounding deterioration for the most uh, already marginalised um, 
uh, racialized and feminized communities and women survivors, um, which again is often kind of hidden or, or, or not hidden, but is re-represented as about a lack of an individual or a failure of behavior or because they're bad parents. And so these kinds of discourses legitimize these interventions and legitimize this ongoing harms. And at the top of this pyramid, we see the kinds of cultures going on in parliament, right? So this is what I'm saying, this, that pyramid there in kind of quite elite political circles is, is the top of an iceberg where actually the state's relationship and the government's relationship with questions of um, gendered and race violence are are compounding and actually criminalising survivors. Um, so these uh, recent allegations, uh, amongst others, as well as uh, videos of sexual acts by staffers, have provoked widespread backlash, protests, and mm -hmm. calls for major reforms and investigations. Yeah. I'm wondering what perspective you have on these responses, especially yeah. at a local level. Yeah, so thank you. So here again, I think, you know, um, a kind of nuanced feminist intersectional politics is always placed, so it always takes really seriously the community and the community's needs. And so I'm going to talk about this in terms of the March for Justice in the Newcastle Mullumimba case. Um, and obviously this will then give a window into those complexities and how they play out and those responses. So what, what we saw here was um, a real incredible response by multiple women, uh, allies and women identifying and trans folk and queer folk who were um, this this appearance at the tip of the iceberg was like, this is enough, right? So, um, and of these kind of gendered and racialized violences. And so what emerged was this desire, I was part of the, one of the organizing of the event, the gathering, was a real desire to make this gathering place, so to engage with kind of these national questions and national questions for certain investigations, for the standing down of um, Christian Porter, for um, changes in um, uh, the criminal justice system, a kind of federal level and, and all these other demands that were emerging. But what we also saw was a real groundswell of survivors in the broadest sense and survivor organizations saying this crisis is much deeper. And so when we're saying enough, we're, we want to talk about all these different intersections that I kind of was outlining and what's gone on for women in a very broad intersectional sense and feminized and racialized communities in the last you know decade and, and more you know as foundational and um so we were we were very mindful um to try to create a process that was intersectional in the way we organized as much as in the nature of the gathering and what did that mean that meant um creating organizational spaces within the very short time that we had which listened to different voices and which visioned collectively about what our gathering should look like and which prioritized the most marginalized groups and centered and honored the the kind of foundational experience of these kinds of violences and ongoing of first nation women and their kin and that also was going to be survivor led so what this meant is that 
as opposed to platforming institutions themselves often bound up with and complicit with these kinds of practices, violent, sexualized, and gendered and racialized practices, we decided to platform uh, subjects who were in the front lines of dealing with this crisis. Um, and that included um, First Nations organization, a First Nations matriarch, and also um, uh, a survivor and writer. Um, but we were really, really concerned that we didn't want to reproduce politics as normal. Right? So kind of politics as normal in this pyramid or in this, this like hierarchy where there's some person talking and, and the audience is kind of passively receiving. We really wanted to give back this gathering, this politics, this retaking of the public to make visible this complex iceberg, this hiddenness, you know, this invisibilized you know, deep rot, really, of, of gendered and racialized kind of violences. And um, uh, by saying this is actually our event. Yeah? So we also organized an open mic. And in that open mic, we, we had some criteria and conditions, and it was to be survivor-led, and it was to share your story. And we actually had over 15 survivors speak at the open mic. And we also ran it as ceremony, so we honoured the elements, we honoured the land, we honoured the unceded nature of these territories and we honoured the struggle and the dignity and the survivance of First Nation women and their kin. And um, so the energy of that meeting place was as though we were in a circle of ceremony. It was, it was very distinct from a lot of how we understand, you know, politics as normal. And that was deliberate because that was about trying to reimagine the nature of politics and to retake the public and to make visible this underside, not just to make visible. So we were very clear it wasn't just about critique. It was about also what were solutions, what were options, what were already practices that were happening in, in multiple um, ways. Um, and so in that sense, there was also this expansion of, of what was acceptable so we didn't follow this idea of like, okay, so the people going to speak need to all have a kind of line and they need to all speak as experts and in a particular way, yeah, which is kind of, yeah, politics is normal, expert is normal. No, we, we were very open to look as survivors precisely because of our traumas. We don't necessarily have coherent narratives, right? It might be that also we're struggling with mental health, with addictions, with these traumas. It might be that you know, there's, um, we need to express emotionality. It might be that we need to express through music or culture or the body. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted that to be an inclusive space. We wanted to flip the script of politics and of kind of patriarchal colonial politics about who is a valid political subject, whose stories do we tell, what modalities of creating our own knowledges and our own stories and our own alternatives um, will emerge from that meeting place. And so I feel that in, in terms of the response and the response in a place space of Mulumimba, Newcastle, that there were seeds planted for a very different type of politics, actually, that, that I haven't, I've, I've experienced, I've been involved with politics and community organising for like over 30 years, right? And um, I was in Venezuela uh, and in Argentina at two moments when there were kind of the emergence of new movements. And they're quite rare historically. 
that they, 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 they get these conjunctures. And I can feel it. I can feel it here with Black Lives Matter and with the movement for justice that something is emergent in these lands and that something that is, is saying in multiple ways enough and that actually this isn't working, this is causing harm, and this is, um, and actually we need to really radically rethink governance, sovereignty, polity, politics. Um, so that, that, that's my experience and my kind of take on what, what is emergent now, these seeds that are emergent. Uh, well, that's a good segue into the next question, uh, which is what are the lessons of these movements uh, an emergence of new subjects into the political sphere for broader politics and democracy. Yeah. I think it raises um, really in concrete, in practice, right, in the taking back of public space in different ways, it really destabilizes taken for granted understandings of what democracy should look like, who should be given a platform in terms of political voice, what political agency looks like, who are the kind of central subjects that, that should be honoured and centred in revisioning of policy, of democracy, of sovereignty, of, of laws, um, in ways that, that, that eradicate and transform um, these systemic forms of kind of gendered and racialized violences. And uh, I think the learnings are that there is kind of enough of a politics whereby um, kind of particular subjects um, who are political representatives and elites kind of talk behind closed doors, reproducing all these cultures of exclusion and violence and um, policies and policy strategies and structures of governance that reproduce these logics of violence and, and exclusion. Um, and that there's, there is a section of our communities that is deeply saying this is enough, this is enough and that this, um, this cannot go on in this way and that really we need to take politics back and we need to take democracy back and we need to envisage and hold space for a, a radical rethinking in practice and in theory, but theories produced with us together of the nature of... Uh, the relationship between the state and civil society of the nature of the public um, of the nature of the structures of, of, of how which stories are told um, which practices of creating knowledge for change and for healing and for healing justice are centered and honored um, I think it's a th this is not um, this is an incredible experience that's happening here, um, but I think we can also see it across the globe. So one of my, my work is actually around the feminization of resistance, part of my work is, and in Latin America and in Europe, and we can see the emergence of this kind of intersectional, decolonizing feminist politics, which is, is raising these fundamental questions about the very structures of rule and governance and authority. Um, and that in many ways are rupturing and disrupting and being rebellious against the kind of hierarchical orderings of power and right and reason and agency that have been foundational in the kind of modern state, both here in Australia and other ways. And, um, and I think at this turning point, historically, we've had COVID and the intensification of certain crises, right? 
but at this there is a kind of political turning point there is a point at which we as communities and and are making are going to be and already are as we can see what's emerging say here making decisions about do we want to reproduce these anti-life logics right do we want to reproduce these extractive deeply violent logics which have always been premised upon the negation the elision the denial of the right to have rights to race and feminized communities and women uh, or do we want to nurture communities of care other logics of politics which are much more circular and inclusive and that are life-giving and that are life-reproducing and that actually are built on the knowledges of 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 survivance and the wisdoms of caring for country and each other that are already present here in in an ancient with first nations communities and, and women but also with other communities so i actually think um this this is more it's within it a, con a containment within the current system to change particular laws to have certain investigations to you know ask the government to stand down and have an elect so within there's that and that's real and i'm not going to say that's not real that's a part and more stronger in certain areas than others but there's also something else that's happening um and for me that's actually really hopeful and exciting um and is an incredible opportunity to um, ask these deeper questions and to right some of this these wrongs and these harms yeah so moving forward what would you like to see being done by our politicians to address the issues and abuses of, 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 of the women face in politics yeah. both short term and long term so well it's kind of implicit in what i'm saying but i think there is many many layers to this but i was thinking about this just previously i was talking to somebody oh and i was doing another interview and somebody asked me this i think um morrison's talking about you know he understands how women's fears and stuff like this i didn't watch it and i kind of said you know it made me think about this because i wasn't going to talk about this but it made me think passing the mic mm. you need to pass the mic if those subjects that have been complicit in reproducing these structures and policies and policy strategies which are pathologizing survivors and pathologizing and reproducing the trauma of the most marginalized already often um, sovereign subjects of this land, right? Ancient, um, with ancient wisdoms. Then, you it it doesn't work for that kind of subject to then proffer a kind of very weak rendition of their understanding, because it reproduces the trauma. So the trauma in abuse is often mirrored in everyday life is mirrored by the state. So what an abuser often does is both gaslights. So kind of helps, like, says things and does things and constructs a discourse to undermine your sense of reality, right? And the sense of your harm, the harm that's occurring to you, that something's not right. But they also present as a really decent, decent person, um, uh, you know, that understands. And, I, you know, for me, something like that is actually re -tra it's very tra traumatic and is very triggering, because so in so many ways the state is complicit in as in as an as an abuser right um and so i think passing the mic so passing the mic then means passing the mic to survivors in multiple senses of the word 
and acknowledging and honoring and building together from processes that are already occurring. So we already have, say, in in Newcastle and, and in surrounding areas, folk who are working on community justice processes, yeah, folk that are working on, you know, the decriminalization of individual drug possession for example because we know many traumatized survivors may well to to so they don't feel the pain may may some are very highly vulnerable to addiction um and then get criminalized right and then get put into the incarcerated and we know how kind of raced and class that is um and there are folks who are working on questions of housing and organizing around this crisis and this gendered and race crisis in housing and and domestic violence supports but not only demanding more resources from the government or that the government actually invests as they say in terms of the municipal government in say affordable housing but that that survivors themselves are setting up organizations so survivors are us is a peer-led survivor-led organization which seeks to provide those communities of care and connection and support and services you know there are um there are those who are trying to support the development of survivor-led housing projects there are projects of like radical education so radical feminist education that actually is always premised upon survivors finding a safe space to talk and actually recovering a sense of voice and political agency and collectively making sense of these multiple layers of, of violences um, to then speak back. And so I think also there's the nurturing of, of these seeds, right, that were, were kind of planted and the reverberations of, of these seeds um, in multiple ways and, in, and by multiple different kind of organisations and groups and collectives who, um, you know, nurture the conditions where these kind of new intersectional, new and ancient uh, subjects um, emerge, right, on the public scene and emerge in ways that won't take kind of false promises and and, and pretty words which are not accompanied by action won't take that and actually bring back a life to politics and bring back a life that, that actually demonstrates how intersectional decolonizing First Nations feminism has so much to offer to everyone because they offer ways of being that are careful, ways of being that are about connection for this disconnection we, we face, ways of being that don't reproduce harm and exploitation and, and pyramids of power where there's just a few at the top making decisions and everyone else feels disempowered. They offer kind of mechanisms of coming to peace and reconciliation with country and this land that that um, uh, that is kind of also you know being violated and uh, and pathways forward for what how do we engage with mental health how do we engage with homelessness and I think it's that it's that actually it's like we actually you <laughs> the policy makers and there are some great policy makers and allies so I don't negate that but the, the very structure and the majority is so bound up with this originary logic that actually there's there's an opening for us to nurture another type of of politics and democracy um that you know centers this ancient wisdom and survivance of first nation women and kin here in these lands and takes that seriously for all the gifts that it can offer us um, and combines this in dialogue with all these other beautiful knowledges that are also present here and experiences um, and that places yeah the passing of the mic back to 
the survivors really and the re- redevelopment of politics from that way up that that would that would be where I am putting my energies in also if it's uh, an opportunity that's uh, that goes forward Sarah thank you very much uh, for your time today okay thank you very much too Politics in a Podcast is supported by the University of Newcastle through the School of Humanities and Social Science. Music is provided by Anchor, a free online podcast creator. And I'm your host, Peter Hooker. It's been a pleasure having you, and we hope that you tune in next time for more Politics in a Podcast.